there is a change in our relationship in regards to sin. When we abide in him, we will be perfected if we walk with him. Do you know, as Christians, we should no longer love the sin that we once did. We should no longer brag about the sin that we used to brag about. We should no longer plan to do sin like we once did. We should no longer fondly remember the sin that we once did. We should never fully enjoy sin like we used to. And we should no longer be comfortable in habitual sin as he was. And isn't that true for us as Christians? When we mess up, when we throw a tantrum, a fit at home, and we yell and say things that we don't mean, doesn't that hurt us? Don't we kind of just get, how in the world can I still be doing that if I call myself a Christian? We say that we know him. We say that we walk with him. We say that we abide in him. These things ought not to be. But they happen, and we have an advocate. We have an advocate who's also the propitiation. So we know that our sins are forgiven because he is just and faithful to forgive us our sins. That's what this passage is talking about. So in verse 6, it says, He that abides in him ought also to walk as he walked. And, you know, when you stop and you think about it and you're reflecting on that one verse and you think about Jesus and you think about the things he did and the things he went through and the things that he had to deal with, you're amazed at how little of a, how poor of a job we do in walking like he walked. In verses 7 and 8, it talks about the old commandment becoming the new commandment. When Jesus was talking to the lawyers, you know the story. We've heard it before. They came up and they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the whole law is fulfilled. That's what this is talking about. God wants us to have a loving relationship with him, and he wants us to have a loving relationship with others. That's what chapter 1 was all about. John is reminding them about what he wrote in his gospel that Jesus had said. Jesus said, and he quoted him, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. He repeated it twice for emphasis and for how important this is. And by this... All men will know that you're my disciples. The expression of our love for one another will tell the world that we are disciples of Jesus. Love one another. In verses 9 to 11, we see some more proofs of our walk. So verse 9, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And when you think about that, it's important for us to realize that even our thinking has to change. Uh, Do my actions prove my relationship and my fellowship with God? Do I hate my brother and am I working in darkness? Are there people in our fellowship? Are there people in other churches that we know that, man, I just hope I never run into them again. I don't ever want to forgive them, uh, you know, for what they did to me. It was just terrible. Well, it wasn't all that bad. I mean, you're still alive. You're still here. So um, 
I'm a, I love my brother is abiding in the light. Am I going out of my way? We'll see some things tonight to talk a little bit about loving our brother and how willing we are to do that. In the next section, he kind of paraphrases, looks like he does a quote here. And John uses illustrations of children, young men, and fathers to show the difference in our progression and our walk. You know, our walk should be progressing. Um, Those of you who are in Patmos, hopefully when you leave Patmos, you're a little stronger Christians than when you came in. Those of us who have studied together through the whole Bible should be a little stronger Christians than when we started. Those of you who are involved in your home fellowship couples ministry and you're going through different studies, you should be becoming stronger Christians, stronger couples, stronger in your relationships. That's what this is all about. That's why we get together. That's why we talk about it. So the, the idea he's expressing here is that children, hey, those of you who are new in the faith, your sins are forgiven. Enjoy it. Come in and have fellowship with us. That's what's important for you. Now, you young men, uh, he's talking to those who have grown up a little bit and they're strong in the faith. Uh, You've overcome the wicked one. You're strong because, he says, the word of God abides in you. And in Psalms 119, David told us, how can a young man cleanse his way? By By taking heed according to his word. And so some of us in the Christian faith, the younger ones, the less young ones, I think we call them. You guys are the ones that he's talking about. You're the ones that need to go out on the battlefield. You're the ones that need to go out on the mission field. You're the ones that need to be preaching on the streets. You're the ones that need to be going, doing the things. I saw somebody wearing the, um, uh, what's the mag- magnify t-shirt. Okay. So that outreach, that's where the young ones take it and they're strong and they go out and they do those things. That's what happens in a youth group. Those people are prepared for that. Some of them will be little children. There'll be some junior high kids up there. They're just Christians. But then there'll be some juniors and seniors who are ready to go out and change the world. And that's this progress that's taking place. And then there's fathers. There's us old, old guys like Hank and I, you know, guys that have been around a long time. And, 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 and you know, we know how it works. And we have a place. Our place is to encourage. Our place is to support. Our place is to pray for and to strengthen and to encourage those that are doing that. So all of these different aspects of our walk in the Lord are part of what we're about here. And then verses 15 to 17. Love not the world. What world? Let's read those. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of the Father abides forever. Don't love the world. Well, what world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's talking about all of mankind. That's the whole world of what God created. This is an interesting verse to play with. This is some really thinking that's hard to do because the world that that we are not to love is the whole world of the fallen world. Uh, The community of those who are alienated and those who are rebellious against God. We're not to be of that world. John tells us this world is under the sway of the wicked one. In 1 John 5, 19, 
It says, we know that we are of God and the world and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, under the the sway of Satan. So this is more of a warning for us not to get trapped by the materialism that characterizes the world system. And, you know, the world buys us. They buy us with uh, great things that it has to give us happiness and fun and excitement and challenges. Cars, homes, gadgets, and the status that goes with them. You know, you buy, you get that new car, the new Beamer, you sit in it, you feel different. You know, I know I bought a few new cars and they always feel good, you know. And hopefully that I don't do that in a fleshly way. But that's what this is cautions. I can have a new car and I can enjoy it in the Lord. But I also could get really in the flesh and say, wow, look at my car. You know, it's really, it's really, it's really sharp. But that status that goes with them is where the pride comes in. And that can make our hearts home in the world. The things that we go out and the things that the world entices us with, we get comfortable with it. That's how we've become comfortable The lust of the flesh, when Eve was in the garden, she saw that the fruit was good for food. It was pleasant to her eyes, the lust of her eyes. And the pride of life, it was desirable to make one wise. So we see in that original sin, we see all three aspects of that. To love the world as it is, alienated and rebellious to God, was impossible but necessary to the one who loved it so. And that's what's an amazing thought. Can you imagine that God is sending his son into a world that's in rebellion against him? Jesus is coming into a world to live a life that's, in, that's alienated and against him. He's coming in with the love of the father and he's willing to die in order that that world, that dead, dying, alienated, horrible world can live. And there should be that radical difference between the world that Jesus came into and the world that he died for to the world that came after him. The man of God and the, the child of God should be different than the man of the world. We should be seen differently when we're in the world. So we can't serve God and mammon, Jesus told us. And we should carefully measure our habits and above the habits of our thinking. And see if they would follow more of the world or more of God and the Father. Think of your standing for success, your standard for success. Is it worldly or godly? Do you measure your success by what the world standard is for success? Or do you measure your success by what God's standard for success is? Something to think about. How about spirituality? What's your standard for spirituality? Do you measure your spirituality by what the world standard is or what God's standard is? The world would say we're a successful church if we're busting at the seam and we have to go to two services on Sunday nights. That's the world standard. Pastor Brandon and I, we don't use that standard at all. God's standard is, is there growth in your life? Have you grown? Are you growing? Have some of you who couldn't sing now singing? 
Are some of you who couldn't teach now teaching? Are some of you who couldn't talk with each other now talking to each other? Is there growth in your life? That's what the Bible's asking for. Is there maturity? Are you progressing in your walk? And so that's what we have to be careful of. What is our standard for success? What is our standard for spirituality? Worldly or godly? Let's make sure that we seek, the, the, seek God's standard in the scripture. Now, throughout Christian history, the church has tried ways to not love the world. Tried over and over. Monasteries were created. Monks and nuns ran off to them. Some of those uh, monasteries you can't talk, except at mealtime. Some of them, all they did was pray. And yet, sin still existed. Some, there were isolated communities or communes. We did that back in the 60s and 70s. There were some groups that got together. We have a couple here on the hill. People that get together and you, you try to drive into the Scientology place. You know, that's the, they went the wrong way. But there were people who would get together and close themselves off. And they would try to not be in the world and to be holy. And then there's been holiness movements from time to time where people would come with this list of rules. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. In order to be holy, you had to measure yourself by this list that was put out. Here's an interesting thought for you. If the, if the first John is the last writing of the last apostle to the church, the, the, the letters uh, that follow this are personal letters to people. And the book of Revelation is Jesus's revelation. So this could very well be the very last words that were penned to the church. And here's an interesting thought. What would happen if you take a look at the first words of the Bible in the beginning, God, and the last words of the book of John? Let me read them to you. In the beginning, God... Keep yourself from idols. That's where the message has come. Where God has begun anything now, God through, through, through the Holy Spirit, through John, is saying, keep yourself from the world. Keep yourself from idols. If that's the bookends, that's kind of an amazing coincidence that those just happen that way. In John 17, Jesus said, Father, he's in, this is his priestly prayer, his, his, his prayer. I have given them your word. Isn't it interesting that he gave the disciples who were about to be rejected, who were about to be on their own, who were about to deny Christ, who were about to see him crucified, that the one thing that he says I gave them was their word, not swords, not commentaries, not Vine's dictionary. I gave them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And so we're to be in the world, but not of the world. In verses 18 to 27, John deals with the spirit of the Antichrist. He um, talks about the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, He's the only one that does. And he uses the word five times, all of them except one with a small a, because it's talking about that spirit of the Antichrist. 
in verse 18, John notes to the to his uh, readers, little children, again, very tenderly. I care so much for you, my darling ones. It's the last hour. So chapter two, verse 18. It's the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, small a, have come, by which we know that is the last hour. Many Antichrists had come, and John is telling his readers, it's the last hour. Well, what is today then? I mean, things have gotten, got to be a lot worse than that. Don't we believe that we're in the last days? Don't we believe that? Don't we hope we are? Amen. Okay. With all the things going the way that they're going, the laws that are being passed today are just uh, amazing. They're just unbelievable that people would get together and pass some of the silly laws that are coming out. And how about the lack of remorse for crimes? Crimes are taking place and there seems to be no remorse and nothing to be done about it. In verse 20, he tells us something that's very important and it's important for us to know. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. So you have an anointing. You have the Holy Spirit. You know all things, because that's what he's going to do, is he's going to bring all things to your remembrance. Remember that the Gnostics, those people we talked about last week, said that they had a higher way. They had a more intellectual way. They had a more spiritual way that you couldn't comprehend. Don't listen to those that went out from us, John is saying here. You have the anointing. You have the truth. God has given you his word, and his word is truth. And John changes here. Some, this was kind of an interesting little, little footnote. Throughout the book of John, first, first John, and in John, he uses the word gnosko to know spirituality. In other words, um, I know because I've experienced. I know because I've done it. It's not something that's intuitive. But here he changes and he uses this word, the only time he uses it, idio, which means knowledge by intuition. Knowledge by, I just kind of had a sense. Have you ever gone into the store or in a restaurant and you start talking with somebody and all of a sudden you just click with them and before long you say, hey, are you, you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. There's a witness of the spirit that takes place. It's kind of a unique, unique thing when it happens. That's what this is talking about. It's knowing by intuition, not knowing by the experience of life. So in verse 21 and 23, he continues to counter the Gnostics and the argument that Jesus was not God. So verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Jesus was not God is what was being portrayed at that time. Spirit and physical were two separate things. They couldn't come together. Denying the deity of Christ. Well, that's happening today. All the time, people are trying to tell us that Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was, well, Jesus is not the only way. Jesus was not the son of God. They're trying to get us to compromise that. So it's the same thing. You have the truth. Hang on to the truth. The truth is what you need to stick with. In verse 24, 
John reminds them to stay with what they've heard. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. From the beginning, true today, we have the words of life and we need to hang on to them. Truth doesn't change. It abides. Fall teachers were saying they have something new. They have a new understanding. They have a better way. And as humans, don't we sometimes think new is better? Don't we think that so often that new is better? And we have found out that new isn't always better. You know, there's something to be said about the old, simple life of being on a farm and raising some crops and having some animals and doing that type of stuff. And, you know, I've shared with some of you the story about the fisherman in Mexico. And an American went down there and he went fishing with a guy. And he says, hey, you know, you're a good fisherman. How much fish do you catch? Oh, I catch all these every day. And he says, I go out and fish. And he says, well, I've got a story for you. He says, why don't we do this? Let's get some bigger boats and let's catch more fish. And then we'll start a cannery down here and then we'll sell it in America. And I'll help you do that because I'm in marketing. And he goes on in, in this. He says, okay, well, let's do that. He says, then what happens? He says, well, then we will put together a stock option. And we'll do an IPO and we'll make it really big. And we'll put some, some, some factories up in Monterey because that's where a lot of fishing is done like that. We'll get some still bigger boats and we'll make this whole thing happen. Okay, well, then what we do? Well, then we'll go to New York and we'll really sell some more stock and we'll put it in the mutual fund. And this thing will be so big. It'll be amazing. He says, then what happens? Well, he says, then you sell your stock and then you can retire and you can come back down here and buy a little boat and do some fishing. So... <laughs> Things aren't always better just because they're new. So we have to be careful of that. Paul in Galatians said he argues with his readers to stay with the original gospel that he preached. Paul is telling the Galatians, don't be going after these other gospels. Judaizers were coming into them and they were trying to change the gospel. Stay with what you have. He warns the Ephesian church that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Stay with the truth. Don't listen to those things that come into the church that say it's over here or it's over there. And then in verse 25, he promised. And this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. Does anybody know the word for eternal life? Zoe. Okay, just want to make sure that you got that done. This is Zoe life at its best. It's a promise from the Lord. It's a promise from God that we can have that eternal life. In verse 26, another reason for his writing to them about those who deceive. These things I have written to you concerning those who are deceiving you. In verse 27, again, he points out that you have the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But at the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and is just at his, has taught you and will abide in you. Well, if it, if it says here that you don't need anyone to teach you, then why am I up here? And why is Pastor Brandon up here? Well, we have to look at the whole gospel. He gave some to be pastors, teachers. And that's the whole point. But the important thing is, is that the word of God and the Holy Spirit is what you need. And that's why we stress 
your involvement and your engaging in the ministry here. Some of you ladies that are teaching, it's amazing to hear what the Lord has done by you being able to teach. Some of you guys that are teaching at the men's practice, it's great to see what's happening. Those are wonderful things. I don't know about youth call and I don't know about the Patmos, but you guys must get a chance to do devotions. I'll bet you're amazed sometimes when what comes out of these young people, when they spend time with the word of God and the Holy Spirit and really nothing else. Now he talks about the characteristics of our fellowship with God. I like this subject. Purity of life. Isn't that fun? Purity of life. Let's read verses 28 through uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Purity of life. And now, little children, my sweet ones, you lovely folks, abide in Christ or in him. And when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If we know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed What we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Abiding in him and practicing righteousness. Remember back in verse 18, John said the last hours he's looking for his coming. And because of that, we should live holy life. If we believe that Jesus was coming tonight, what would we be doing with ourselves? I think we would be doing a couple of things. We would be making sure those people we know that are unsaved hear the gospel. We would make sure if there's any sin in our life that gets confessed because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If there's any sinful things that are in our homes or in our uh, our iPads or our, our, our smartphones, we'd clean them up right away. Those are the types of things that should happen. And when we know that the Lord is coming soon, we live that type of life. Oh, before we leave chapter two, just this, uh, there's three things that I think are important for us to see. These are things that you should all be able to say in verse four. You should be able to say that I know him. In verse six, you should be able to say I abide in him. And in verse nine, you should be able to say that you are in the light with him. So those are three things you should be able to say. John wants us to know that if these statements are true, it will show up in our lives, especially in the way that we love our brothers and sisters. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he reminds us of the great love that Christ had for us and how life-changing that love is. We are called the children of God. And boy, is that a time? Is that a verse to think about? Behold, now we are the children of God and whoops, I'm sorry. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And as I was praying about that and thinking about it, a song came into my mind and I kept singing it and singing it over and over. And tonight when I got here, I tried to see if anybody remembered it, and we didn't, because I couldn't tell them enough about it. But I kind of knew what it was. And 
it's the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Just to think that God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Just to think that God loves me. There's the wonder of sunset and at the evening and the wonder of sunrise I see. But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. There's the wonder of springtime and harvest, the sky, the stars and the sun. But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that's only begun. Oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. It's amazing. It's an old song. Haven't heard it in a long time. Um, we, we won't sing it tonight. We have a surprise for you, but not that surprise. But that's what happens when you meditate on the word. Something will trigger something that you remembered from a teaching, from a study that you did before, from something that you read, from an old song that you've sung. And then you dwell on it and the Lord refreshes you. All the wonder of it all. Just to think that God loves me. But John said, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So we have this great privilege because of his great love for us that we can be called the children of God. Paul in Romans said that if you are children, then you're heirs and joint heirs with Christ. You can go into the first chat, first three chapters of Ephesians and see a whole bunch more of that provision that we have because we're children of God. Behold, what manner of love God has given us some. Do we really apprehend how great that love is? So John has been giving us some tests as we go along. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship and walk in darkness, uh, we lie. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. In verse 9, he says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. And in 15, Part B, he says, if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. If a child of God, if you say, I know him, I abide in him, I love him, he's my savior, then we need to be in fellowship, like he says in chapter 1. So again, John mentions the coming of the Lord. We don't know what we will be like, but we know that we will be like him. Romans 8.29 says this, For he foreknew, whom he foreknew, he predestined, to be conformed to the image of the Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Every generation should live in anticipation of the Lord's coming. That should be something that we're hopeful for, and that should give us that sense of urgency to get the gospel out. Give us an incentive for pure living and a proper view of the world and its worldly things. You know, in verse 3 it says, and this, this is another verse that you could ponder. Go home tonight and ponder this before you go to bed. And call me in the morning and tell me how it went. And everyone who, is, who has this hope, what hope? The hope of Christ saving your soul. The hope of his coming. If you have that hope, ponder this. 
purify yourself. You, that's what you should be doing, just as he is pure. What does that mean, purify yourself? Till he is, is completely saved from his sins as Christ was free from his sin. We should be able to be so in tune with the Lord that we should become so pure that we're that clean of ourselves. And how do we do that? We do it by allowing the word of God and the Holy Spirit to examine us deeply. Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there is any wicked way. If you read some of the Psalms and you see the turmoil that David was going through when he wrote those Psalms, how he was pulled, even sometimes arguing with God, those are the kinds of things that this verse is talking about. In verses 4 to 12, the next section is to practice righteousness. You know, sin has a power and a presence and a penalty. Those are all things that we have in our life. The law of God was put, given to us to show us sin. And David said that the law of God was perfect. But these were all covered when Jesus took away our sins. So let's read these verses. Chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. He came to take away our sins. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God has manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his, him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Practice righteousness. That's what we should be doing. Verses 13 to 24, love our brothers, not just in word, but in deed. And this is the greatest proof of our love for God. It says in verse 13, we will be hated by the world. Worse and worse. It's getting worse for us as Christians. We're being more and more singled out. We're being called bigots. We're being called people who are haters. And all we're trying to do is say what God says. Love for one another is a proof of having eternal life. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brothers abides in death. Loving one another is proof that you have eternal life. Hatred in our heart is murder. The same thing that Jesus taught us. It's not the, the hatred that turns to murder. It's that thing that happens in our heart when we despise one another. When we cut off ourselves in our relationships. Sin happens first. In our hearts. In verse 16, it was because he loved us, we should lay down our lives for others. This is a hard one. But by this we know, because he laid down his life for us, we should also lay our, down, our lives down for our brethren. But whoever has this world's goods 
and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So John is saying we should lay down our lives for him like Jesus laid down his life for us. Well, Jesus was willing to go to the cross. Jesus was willing to do all that he did for us. We should be willing to do that. But you know what? Maybe we need to take it down a notch. Uh, Maybe we should just talk about helping out somebody with a loaf of bread or a few dollars or a little bit of work on a Saturday, something like that. Because that first part of this equation is pretty tough. But how are we doing on the second part? He says there in verse 17. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? Paul says it like this in Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's our example In a sermon titled, The Death of Christ for His People, Spurgeon drew only three points out of this one sentence. And these are the points. These were his main topics. How great must have been our sin. How great must have been His love. And how safe the believer is in the love of Christ. To reread a couple verses. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So. A little tough to do that, but how about sharing our our goods and helping others? In verse 18, it's to love the word. My little children, let us not love in word or in, I mean, love in word or in tongue, but in deed or truth. When we love in word and we don't love in deed, it's a problem. When we love with our tongue, but we don't love in truth, it's a problem. And so often we have to be so careful about the commitments we make to one another. Because if we make, if fathers make a commitment to children in that example that we had from before, those children are expecting the fathers or the young strong men to keep their word. Have you ever told your kids, take them to Disneyland on Saturday? If any of you have young kids, do not do that. Do not do that until you're in the car and you're almost there, okay? Because it backfires on you every time. And then you broke your promise, Dad. You promised we were going to Disneyland today. Don't do that, okay? That's what this is talking about. You know, keep your word is one of the ways that we do this. If you're going to love in word, love in deed as well. If you're going to love with your tongue, then love in truth and in your actions. The world can define love any way that it wants. And there's a lot of definitions of love in the world. But you know what? Christians have the final definition. Love is laying down one's life for another. Love is the deed and the truth of our profession. We can't redefine love. Love for us as Christians has been defined. It has been given to us. We need to apply it. We need to do it. In verse 19, he gives us another proof. And by this, we know 
there's a homework assignment. Go home tonight and count all the we knows in John, okay? And this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Let us not love and word of deed. That's how we know. For in our hearts, verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows this. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have the confidence towards God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. We need to keep that and hold on to it. And we need to keep, um, you know, uh, that, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. God is greater than our own hearts. You know, our hearts are, are devious. And sometimes our hearts even condemn us. We feel like a failure. Enemy condemns us to keep us from God. He wants to keep us from God. How many of you youth callers have wanted to go home because you felt like a failure? You felt like you couldn't keep up with it. How many of you guys, you Patmos guys, have, <laughs> have said, I can't do this. It's, it's just no way, no way. The enemy comes in and whispers and says, you know, how can you be leading prayer this morning when last night you were thinking this thought? How can you be doing this when you guys snuck out and broke curfew? How can... Uh, hey, they told me. They told me from over there, okay? It's important. It's important for us to grasp this, that we need to know that Nothing can condemn those. You know, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the enemy. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is a great thing. And I hope the conviction of the Holy Spirit hurts you like crazy. I hope when the Holy Spirit convicts you, it rips your heart open and you fall down before him and you cry for him and you, you plead and you promise him a hundred times it'll never happen again. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's a great thing. But condemnation comes from the pit of hell and you can't allow it in your heart. But greater is he than your heart. God is greater than your heart. That's the love that he's given us. Behold what manner of love the father has given unto us. Verse 21, our hearts can have confidence because because of the manner of love that we have. In verse 22, it talks about the assurance of our prayers being answered. And then in verses 23 and 24, just real straightforward, this is the way John has been in this whole letter. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we should love one another. And he gave us, as, and he gave us commandment. Now, he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so that abiding comes when we keep his commandment and it's evidenced when we love one another. What great love is this? Behold, what manner of love the father has given unto us. Let's pray.